0: This uh, Advent series, this Advent um, season, we're looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And uh, um, we're looking at the last letter this morning, page 993, the letter to the church in Laodicea. Well, um, Advent, of course, means uh, coming. Uh, and during Advent, we tend to focus on what it means that Jesus came to earth at Christmas some 2,000 years ago. Um, or what it means that Jesus is coming again, or indeed both. And in these first three chapters of the book of Revelation, the fact that Jesus is coming and coming soon is said directly or indirectly nine times. Nine times. This, This is all about Advent, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, in the seventh and final letter which uh, we've read together this morning, Jesus describes himself not as coming, such as in verse 3, nor as coming soon, such as in verse uh, 11, uh, but essentially as somebody who has arrived, somebody whose uh, arrival is, is imminent, urgently close at hand. Verse 20, behold, or as it's translated in the pew Bible, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is right outside, right on the doorstep, and the day of decision has arrived. And who can stand? Well, um, Laodicea was one of uh, three towns that lay close together in the valley of the the river Lycus uh, in what is today western Turkey, what was back then the Roman province of Asia. And the two other close-by cities were um, Hierapolis and Colossa. Uh, Laodicea had a commanding location, sitting in a narrow glen in just the right position to command all of the trade up and down the river valley. Three important trade routes came together at Laodicea, making it one of the richest commercial centres in the ancient world. They were the Swiss bankers to the Romans. The whole area also, of course, is very geologically active. It's one of the most earthquake-prone places in the whole world. Um, And in AD 17, a major earthquake devastated Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The emperor of the time, Emperor Tiberius, donated a great deal of aid to rebuilding those three cities. But it was only 43 years later, in AD 60, that Laodicea was devastated again by another earthquake. This time, however, the Laodiceans refused all aid, preferring instead to rebuild the city completely by way of their own resources. Uh, the, The Roman historian Tacitus wrote, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources, and with no help, from us. Well, uh, this same intense geological activity gave rise to another feature uh, of the city: uh, hot mineral springs, and uh, that made it a centre of healing. People came there to to to, to be healed. Um, and the hot mineral springs they ran down in streams as they passed by uh, Laodicea. They were by that stage just warm, not hot. Um, And they had a heavy mineral load, they were rich in calcium, and as a result of that, they uh, were nauseating and the water stank. Uh, It wasn't a pleasant pleasant drink at all. Two uh, local industries are worth knowing about and contributed to the wealth of the city. Uh, um, The first one is that the, the surrounding countryside was world famous for a certain breed of sheep that had very fine, glossy black wool. Factories in Laodicea made four different kinds of black woolen outer garment that were exported, um, and very expensive, uh, exported all over the Roman Empire. And as a place of healing, Laodicea was famous for its medical school. Above all, it was famous for an eye powder called Tethra Phrygia. Um, The eye powder was exported all over the known world in tablet form. And when you got the tablet, you ground it up into a powder, you mixed it uh, with water to form a paste, and then you applied it as a salve uh, to your eyes. It was supposed to cure weak and ailing vision. This, then, is the city of Laodicea. Healthy, wealthy, wise, prosperous, self-reliant, self-sufficient. It was fashionable, affluent, cosmopolitan, well-educated, and proud. Uh, these things, together with a Bible in our hands, will, us, will allow us to decode the letter, to read and understand the symbols that are being used in this letter in the book of Revelation. And the letter begins, as with all of the seven letters, it begins with a description of the sender. Jesus of Nazareth says of himself, verse fourteen: "These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation." Um, well, um, this actually—I mean—it's just a beautiful and perfect description of Jesus for the Advent season, for for Christmas time. Um, because it tells us Jesus is a human being. He's a man. Um, uh, uh, he, he came to us at, at Christmas as, as a baby. But as a human being, uh, he is the faithful and true witness. In other words, he is the one who in the image of God shows us exactly who God is. He shows us exactly what God is like, And in doing that shows us exactly what it means to be a human being. If you want to know the truth about any of those questions, just look to Jesus of Nazareth. Anyone who has seen the Son has seen the Father. And anyone who has met the Son has met the Father. And he is the ruler of God's creation. Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, just as Isaiah prophesied, and he is the Amen. What does that word mean? Well, actually, Amen uh, means a lot of things. You might think it means, now we've stopped praying we can eat. Uh, But uh, it it comes from uh, the Hebrew um, word for faith or trust. And and indeed, it can mean a lot of different things. It means yes, or truly, or I agree, or um, indeed, or may it be so. Jesus is the Amen of God. He is the Yes of God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are all Yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Uh, This is the sender of the letter, Jesus of Nazareth. We know God because of him and through him and in him. And Jesus says to the Laodicean Christians, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Um, Well, uh, we kind of all, all know when it comes to food and drink, none of us really like lukewarm things. uh, I enjoy drinking uh, cold water or hot water, uh, but lukewarm water or uh, beer, for that matter, is pretty disgusting. Um, And you know, if you're at a deli and you order chicken and it comes out of the bain-marie warm, you think, "Oh, I hope this isn't dodgy." Um, (laughs) Cold chicken, hot chicken. No, we all we all despise. You know, we all have a natural, right, and instinctive distrust of lukewarm. It's not safe. The point of the analogy here is one of disgust. The point of the analogy is not to be distracted into discussions as to precisely how it may have been better for them either to have been cold in their Christianity or on fire in their Christianity, but rather to see that something is going on here that is unacceptably offensive to Jesus, something intolerable. So what is it? What is intolerable? Well, verse 17, you say... I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. Um, Obviously, the material wealth and the attitude of self-satisfied self-sufficiency that characterized the city, we can now see that those things also characterized the church as well. The Christians in that city were just the same as the people around them. They were wealthy, self-satisfied, self sufficient. And Jesus' diagnosis of their condition is therefore, but you do not realize that actually you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And if Jesus says they are, that they are those things, then that is exactly what they are. And so on the basis of, Of the diagnosis, uh, a prescription, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. And, of course, in keeping with the fact that this is um, apocalypse, this is uh, uh, apocalyptic literary style, all of these things are figurative. They are symbolic. We must decode them. What do these things mean? Well, gold refined in the fire, um, to refine gold in fire either means pure gold and or um, gold that has been tested. Uh, Given that this gold will make them rich... Um, And given what Jesus talks about um, elsewhere in the Gospels, about how to be rich, I'm guessing, I'm thinking that Jesus is telling them to trade in on their pretend treasures, on their worldly treasures, to trade that in on real treasure, on heavenly treasure. In other words, he is telling them to be generous. And I'm sure at one level... um, I'm sure, at one level, uh, these Christians were probably already generous, and if we were there, we may have known them as exceedingly generous people. Um, middle class and upper class uh, Christians are often exceedingly generous with respect to large cash donations and gifts. I mean, I've seen it here at St Barnabas. You know, you sometimes you know all kinds of lavish gifts and huge uh, donations of money and cars and even houses. Um, gifts that make other people go, "Wow, what, what a generous bunch!" But arguably, but arguably, here in Australia, it 's working class Christians or globally poor Christians who actually know what generosity is, and that 's because generosity is the gift that hurts. Um, generosity is transactional. Generosity is the transfer of suffering. Generosity says, here you are, I will go without so that you don't have to. And actually, none of us are ever going to get that. We're not not ever really, unless we actually are able to really trust that our God is a God who pays our debts and who supports us even when, especially when, we ourselves give away the God-given means of support. So when we give away the means by which God can, you know, we can support ourselves from God, that's when we expect to see God most at work. Indeed, as Paul writes in Second Corinthians chapter 8, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Paul continues later, I'm I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Um, So then, the gold that's been refined in fire is pure gold, true riches, the true riches that we earn in the heavenly realms when we... Let go and give. And it's gold that has been tested. It's been refined in fire. It's tested because the, the test of generosity is the willingness to suffer. After all, without suffering, a sacrifice is no sacrifice. Jesus continues, And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. Um, In in this series of sermons, we've had reason to consider the spiritual symbolism of clothing many times. It keeps on coming up, and I spoke about the spiritual symbolism of clothing at length last week. Uh, Jesus is offering them white garments in order that, to translate it literally, in order that your nakedness might not be shamefully revealed. Um, This isn't about prudishness concerning human nudity. This is actually about forgiveness. Their self-satisfaction and self-sufficiency have blinded them to their own desperate need for the cross. Their nakedness is, symbolically, the fact that they are completely without any dignity or standing in the presence of God because they are sinners. And the holy and the profane can never mix. The white garment on offer is forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. The clothing that Jesus offers is the covering, the protection of his blood. To mix metaphors and yet to speak accurately. Nice, polite, Well-behaved, affluent, law-abiding Christians have enormous trouble with the cross. We all naturally revile against the notion that actually Jesus really did have to die to atone for my sin before God on the cross. It's easy to be in denial. It's easy to not get it. Just ask Peter. Peter felt that he was ready to die for Jesus, when in fact what was needed was for Jesus to die for him. The meaning of the cross, because it's so hard to get, the meaning of the cross is constantly being vigorously and heatedly debated in the church, especially in the affluent West, because it is so offensive until we finally get it. And indeed, it's not hard to find a church or even a denomination in which people have stepped back from the plain biblical teaching about the cross that Jesus died there for me and for you and for the sins of the whole world collectively, but also for each one of us individually. And that without that blood sacrifice, without the atonement through his death, We'd all be stuffed. White clothing, in contrast to the black woolen garments in which they took such pride, white clothing stands for righteousness, dignity, standing in the presence of God. Of God, And indeed we can stand with dignity, with righteousness, with the righteousness of Christ in the presence of God. We have dignity in the presence of God, but if and only if it is by the blood of the Lamb. If and only if we confess that we have sinned and that we are completely unable to save ourselves. We are completely unable to atone. Um, that our our good works do not justify us in the presence of a holy God and indeed that is a profoundly offensive idea to him and that if we ever might think that our good works justify us in the presence of God then we are truly blind. And with respect to such blindness, a correction is on offer. Jesus has salve to put on our eyes so that we can see. Especially ironic to offer eye salve to the manufacturers of eye salve. When Jesus was on earth, he said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to be able to see, your guilt remains. Just as we need to ask Jesus for ears to hear, so too we must ask him for eyes that see. Eyes that see him, eyes that see this world in the way that he sees it. Uh, Lord, hear our prayer. But of course there is always encouragement. Uh, Verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. It is important to understand that Jesus is not angry with these Laodicean Christians. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't get angry, but I am saying that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit do not get angry with the children of God. Of course, it's quite possible to meet with an angry God if you're on the outside, if you're not a child of God. But on the inside of God, having entered into the triune community by the blood of the Lamb, we enter and we encounter in the gospel a loving father, a loving brother, a loving counselor, a loving Savior and Lord. God's wrath on sin and evil was laid upon the Son at the cross. If you are in Christ, God is not angry with you. So God's love to his children is evidenced in his willingness to rebuke and discipline. Indeed, to receive a rebuke or discipline from God is evidence of his love. To to, to hear his rebuke in the words of the Bible, to, to, to hear our conscience pricked in the voice of a friend is to hear evidence of God's love for us. And in this context, all, all that we've already uh, read all that's already been said by Jesus to His Church in this letter, as well as in the previous six letters. All that was shocking and distressing, and, um, and, and 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 apparently hurtful, inasmuch as these words sounded like harsh words of judgment and anger. Actually, they were words of love, evidence of God's love for us. And so, to an invitation, a famous invitation, verse twenty. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Uh, well, we've uh, talked about self-sufficiency and gold and clothing and so forth. Here, suddenly, we find another, another illustration of the problem uh, uh, of the church in Laodicea, the problem is that Jesus has been locked out. He's not welcome at their Holy Communion services. And again, sadly, we are not talking about something that is uncommon. Sadly, in the Australian church, um, there are many, many, many churches where Jesus is not welcome. Uh, And that's because, actually, the Christians inside, they've got everything worked out, they know how it's meant to be done, because it's always been done that way. And uh, Jesus, uh, with his teachings and his commands, is just too troubling. He's just too demanding. He's just too unsafe. And I'm not talking about any particular tradition or denomination. All of the major power brokers of Christianity, in the, you know, whether it's evangelical, charismatic, uh, Anglo-Catholic, Catholic, whatever, that, you find the same pattern. It's easy to lock Jesus out of our worship services. Because he is disturbing. However, although this is a corporate problem, Jesus is not welcome at their services. That's a corporate problem. The invitation that Jesus gives is now to each and every individual. If anyone hears my voice. Um, Again, disturbing language. Spiritual deafness in the Bible is uh, evidence of idolatry. Idolatry is putting something other than God in the place of God. What were their idols? What was really important to them? What did they worship? Well, actually, we've already been told, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. In essence, they worshipped material comfort in all of its manifestations. Uh, not just money, certainly money, but also position, authority, power, status, food, enjoying life, marriage, family, children, experiences, career, education, music, sport, etc., etc., Dolce Vita, the good life. It's not as if any of these things are wrong in themselves. None of these things are wrong in themselves, but rather the goal of their lives was not seeking first the kingdom, led by compassion for others and passion for Christ, but rather the goal of their lives was personal fulfillment, driven by self-focused ambition, by desires. Undoubtedly, they felt a need for God, at least a need for his help in achieving their goals, in overcoming the obstacles in their way, but their spirituality clearly wasn't about seeking God's face, offering themselves in his service in order that he might use them to achieve his goals. Overcoming obstacles to the kingdom. That's not what they're about. If anyone hears my voice, sometimes uh, people say to me things like, oh, I think God might be trying to say to me dot, 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 or I think God might be telling me dot, 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 as though God mumbles and struggles to, to make himself heard, as, that, as though God speaks in whispers. But God has no difficulty in speaking. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The problem is us. It's sin. That's what hardness of heart leads to uh, to, 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 to being hard of hearing. We must ask Jesus for the gift of hearing his voice. Here I am. I stand. At the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Well, to eat together is to belong together. Um, eating together is so very important. To eat together is to belong together and to have intimate fellowship. If anyone might open the door, Jesus comes straight in. He come, just comes straight in. He, he doesn't stand at a distance sulking and say, I'm not going to come in unless you say, sorry for this, this, 't this. Just, just invite him in, he'll come straight in. He's there waiting. But he is a gentleman. He will likewise not push his way in. He waits to be invited. Well, the material wealth of the city of Laodicea was a severe danger to the spiritual health of the Laodicean Christians. I do think that Jesus wants to loosen the purse strings of these churchgoers in radical ways, changing lukewarm tokenism into real, sacrificial generosity. But, by the same token, it is not their wealth that Jesus finds objectionable, intolerable, but rather the attitude of the heart that it had led to, what he finds intolerable is their self-satisfied self-sufficient attitude he wants them to change their hearts heart change first then new work and new deeds the the hard fact of the matter is is that the comfortable life we all tend to yearn for is spiritually very dangerous Jesus actually had the option. He was given the option, the option of a comfortable life, but he rejected it. Rather, for the glory set before him, he endured the suffering that his father had chosen for him, and he endured the cross. And there he was victorious. We often encounter life as a battle. Both comfort and discomfort challenge us and challenge our faith, but Jesus in all of these things is victorious. The war has been won. And Jesus is just bending over himself in his desire to share the spoils of victory and the fruit of his uh, conquering. Verse 21, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Um, I'm guessing that would be a lot of power given that he's the ruler of God's creation. I'm, I'm guessing uh, for, um, for you know a, a, a crowd that's ambitious and keen on advancement, that's actually quite an offer. Uh, God actually does allow us to be self-interested and to be ambitious. But he demands that we understand to whom that ambition belong, belongs and in which direction our desires must point us. Whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let us pray. Uh, I'm going to pray. You might like to say it um, silently in your own heart uh, or join in with me as I pray a prayer of response. Um, O God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Dear Lord Jesus, for being lukewarm, I beg your forgiveness. Please do not spit me out of your mouth or treat me as my sins deserve. I confess that I am wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You alone can save me. I invite you in. We invite you in. I am your person. This is your church we open the door, please come in. Please give me ears that hear and eyes that see. Ears that hear your voice, eyes that see what you're doing and see the world as you see it. Show me the way to go and lead me in your truth. To the glory of God our Father and in Christ's name. Amen.